a very special moment because it, it just marks um, something really special for the church that we get to, as the church, walk alongside this family. So again, uh, so grateful for all of you, uh, so grateful for the Markhams and to be able to do uh, this. Uh, well, a couple of other things uh, to be aware of. First off, if you're a guest, maybe you're brand new, um, my name is Paul. I'm the teaching pastor here. Uh, so good to worship with you, uh, to have this moment as a church, uh, to commit to this family, to, to walk with them and, and, and support in every way that we can, to pray for them. I will say also, as it relates to LifePoint Kids, uh, so Becky, uh, who is just up here, and uh, Becky has served as our children's director uh, since before we existed as LifePoint Marion, uh, really from the beginning. Becky has done such a phenomenal job of laying the groundwork and the structure of how we do LifePoint Kids here, recruiting volunteers. And so uh, Becky is shifting into a different uh, phase of life. Uh, she's going to be getting married, uh, moving eventually. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's good. And so um, given that, Becky is, has chosen to step down uh, from the LifePoint Kids director, uh, which given uh, her um, just, again, shift in phase of life, I think that, that makes sense. But I just want to, church, I can't tell you enough how great of a job Becky has done in leading our uh, LifePoint Kids ministry, investing in those kiddos, investing in those leaders. And so, church, can we thank Becky? So every time, you know, somebody transitions out of a staff position, obviously then we have a, a bit of a vacancy, um, but the Lord has been very gracious uh, in, in filling that role already. And so Michaela Klingel, I've got a picture of Michaela, uh, and her family, so her husband, Rich, uh, they are life group leaders. They've been a part of LifePoint Marion from the beginning. they got three kiddos. And so Michaela is going to be stepping into that LifePoint Kids director role. Uh, this is actually her first Sunday uh, officially as that uh, director. Becky's last official Sunday will be next week. Unfortunately, Michaela is sick today, which is a real bummer. And so she's not here, um, but so thankful for how the Lord has brought that together. Uh, and I'm excited to see what he does. And so one more, we got a lot of applause this morning, so let's give it up for Michaela again. So, uh, a lot of good things going, a, a lot of activity today, it's a, it's a unique Sunday. We're going to take communion at the end of service today as well, and so I just want to give you a, a mental heads up for that. I will also say, um, right now my voice sounds okay. Um, I don't know how it's going to sound in 30 minutes, okay? So just, just brace yourselves, it might not be great. On um, Wednesday and Thursday of this week, I could hardly speak, uh, which was not awesome. But I'm thankful to be here. We made it. And so today, we are in week nine of a 10-week series going through the book of Revelation, okay? And what we said over and over again throughout this series is that the Revelation is more about present hope than it is a future calendar. And we've, we've talked about that each and every week and, and how oftentimes when we look at the book of Revelation, it's really, really easy to get caught up in, well, what does this mean? Is this a fulfillment of prophecy? When is this going to happen? And, and while it's not bad to consider what's happening next, sometimes we can be so focused on trying to figure out what happens next, we lose sight of the fact that Jesus is reigning presently, that Jesus is king right now, and that, that causes us, to, again, to, to lose focus on that and, and to maybe miss out on the hope that we have available to us because Jesus is king today. Okay? So that's really the, the big idea of this series today, which is maybe a mistake. Uh, we're going to read chapters 19 and 20, which is a whole lot of text. And chapters 19 and 20 of the book of Revelation, I will say there is a whole lot in them. And one of the most heavily debated passages in all of Scripture. So it should be great. It's going to be awesome. 
um, I will say as well, just to sort of help orient us, um, I think of, of this section in Scripture that we're in a little bit like something called a view master. Some of you may recognize this thing on the screen. Anybody remember those? Yeah, those things are awesome, right? Um, and so the thing about a Viewmaster is you have this disc right here, and typically there's some sort of theme in this disc, right? You put this thing in, and it either tells a sequential story that's all tied together, or maybe there would be some discs that's like Niagara Falls, right? And so you get this disc, and you're like, wow, it's amazing. And it would have these different pictures from different angles, for example, of Niagara Falls, well, today's passage is a little bit like a Viewmaster, view and the disc that we're inputting into the Viewmaster, it's Jesus' triumphant victory over his enemies. And so as we're clicking through these slides, what we're going to see is these different views, these different scenes, these different pictures of the enemies that Jesus is defeating. And it might seem like we're bouncing around, but it's all part of one cohesive story. It's not necessarily sequential in terms of a timeline, though it may be, right? There's different opinions on that. But the point is, Jesus is going to systematically, totally, and completely wipe out the enemy. Hallelujah. Praise God. And in these passages today, we're going to see the complete destruction of Satan. Hallelujah. Amen. Okay? And so that's where we are headed. And I will give us a little bit of a backdrop and a background because the first two words of chapter 19 are after this. Okay? And anytime we read after this in the scriptures, well, it's always good to ask ourselves the question, after what? And so the after what that we are referring to here, and again, is this sequential? Either way, it's the next slide, and this is the next thing John is seeing. It refers back to chapter 17 and 18, which we covered last week. I believe it was last week. Uh, this week is a bit of a blur. So last week, what we saw is this thing called Babylon. And Babylon, it was this vision of this woman who was very seductive in appearance, and she is riding on a beast that has seven heads and ten horns. And you're like, what the world does that mean? Well, again, you can go back and listen to that in detail, but I do want to give you a little bit of a recap so that we're oriented and we know what's happening when he says, after this. And so Babylon, true to the book of Revelation, it's very symbolic in nature. Okay, we're given these images that really illustrate or depict things um, that, that are, again, sort of, sort of to teach us these greater truths, right? And so this woman, what does she symbolize or what does she represent? Well, we went back into the scriptures and we understood, okay, well, what is Babylon? The text very clearly said she is Babylon. And so then we went to um, different parts in Scripture. Uh, we were in 2 Kings, and we saw how King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of the Babylonian Empire, he came into Jerusalem, and he wiped out the city. He destroyed the temple. He carried away citizens of Jeru Jerusalem into exile. And so in the minds of those first readers of this, when they hear the name Babylon, what they think is someone or something, not not bound by time, not bound by geography, not bound by a certain nation, but Babylon is representative of anyone or anything that desires to destroy the people and the purposes of God. In fact, Babylon not only wants to destroy the people and purposes of God, Babylon also wants to destroy people in general. So that's what we saw as one thing that Babylon means. Now we saw a second thing that Babylon means. And to do that, we went all the way back into Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, we see this civilization called Babel, and, and they're settled in this 
um, the plains of Shinar, and eventually that's where the kingdom of, of the Babylonians settles. But we see this Tower of Babel being built up. And the express goal as these people come together in building the Tower of Babel is to make a name for themselves. Say, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build this great tower. And God sees this and he says, no. He destroys it. He disperses the people. But what we see is that Babel in this instance represents and is a picture of essentially spiritual, spiritual prostitution or spiritual adultery, to say, no, God, I want to be my own God. I'm going to reject your authority, and I'm going to pursue what it is I want to pursue. And so Babylon both represents this this seductive allure toward being our own God, and Babylon represents the destruction of God's people, God's purposes, and people in general. Both of those things are simultaneously true. A lot of backdrop, a lot of background. But I just want to make sure we know. Okay, And so now, as we get into chapter 19, that's the context. First, I want to pray for us and ask the Lord for help, because uh, these verses are a challenge, I will, I will admit. Um, so, let's pray, and then let's go from there. Father, so grateful uh, for this time together as a church family. I'm so thankful for your word, uh, that it's true, that we can trust it. God, as we open up your word today in Revelation Would you open these words to us? God, would you give me clarity of mind, clarity of thought, and clarity of communication? Would you get me out of the way? Um, Would you be glorified above and beyond all? Holy Spirit, would you work in us in a very unique, a very special way that we come to repentance and faith and worship of who you are? It's in Christ's name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Chapter 19, beginning in verses 1 through 5, it says this. After this, we all know what he's talking about. I heard what seemed to be a loud voice, and I would say as well, in 17 and 18, this is very important, Jesus destroyed Babylon, okay? It's dead, Jesus destroyed Babylon, it's over, and people are, in chapter 18, mourning, saying, where is Babylon, where is Babylon? The people who don't know God are saying that, and now we get the response of God's people as they see the destruction of Babylon. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke goes up from her forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, you all his servants who fear him, small and great. So here, again, in response to Babylon being destroyed, we see the people of God saying, Hallelujah. And I think this week in particular, As we think of Babylon representing this evil force and being present and carried out in any nation or any people that is sort of carrying out and implementing the practices of of Babylon, and we look to the Middle East and the horrors that were unleashed in Israel by Hamas, horrific. That is a display of Babylon. And so then as we we see that and we're like, how how do we respond to that? If If you... have been glued to your phone or to the news looking at these videos and pictures and images that makes you like physically ill. 
And yet here's where I want to remind us of the main point of this series, that God offers us a present hope. And so as we're confronted with the evil of of organizations like Hamas, what we need to be reminded is that evil like that will be destroyed. It will be judged. It will be cast down. Jesus will win. And so as we're confronted with such great evil, we should have hope to say, no, God, you win. There will be judgment. There will be justice. People cannot do this and just get away with it in eternity. God will judge evil such as that in every work that goes against him, to be clear. And so when we see this, we can sing hallelujah because we know eventually Jesus wins. As I was thinking about that, and I think we all agree, yeah, we we want evil like that to be judged, to be destroyed, and to be wiped away. But remember, Babylon also represents this seduction toward becoming our own gods and toward rejecting Jesus, which got me thinking about this. We hate destructive Babylon, like Hamas, but we have a tendency to enjoy seductive Babylon. So here's what I mean by that. When we see evils like, we're like, that is clear, I hate that. Wipe it away, hallelujah, praise God. But, but wait a minute. For example, think about consumerism. You say, consumerism, Babylon, how can that be? Well, here's what consumerism says. Consumerism says you buy and buy and buy and buy in order to satisfy your soul so you'll be content and happy. That's at the root of consumerism, okay? Is I'm going to... to find everything I can that I believe will satisfy my soul, and I'm going to get it to its max. That is a spiritual adultery to a degree that rejects God, who is the only one who can satisfy your soul, and says, no, I'm going to look elsewhere to find my soul satisfaction. And so if God is going to destroy both parts of Babylon, what that means is consumerism gets destroyed too. Just one example. And so then my question is, if consumerism, just as an example, is destroyed, will we say, hallelujah, praise God, or will we say, I like that? Actually, could could you not do that? Think about pornography or sexual immorality. Absolutely a fruit and a work of Babylon that seeks to draw us away from who God is to find satisfaction, to find fulfillment, to directly reject God's commands and say, no, I'm going to do things my way. And I got personal experience in this one, which I've shared quite a bit. And God's going to destroy it. And we're going to say, hallelujah, praise God. I think our heart wants to say, yes, absolutely. I want that destroyed. I want that gone. And yet when we look at our lives, are we pursuing, are we promoting, and are we glorifying that element of Babylon? And will we feel sorrow if Jesus destroys it? Politics. I don't know, I'm getting sensitive here when we talk about politics, but some of us are so wrapped up in what political party we we feel an affiliation to, and I'm not saying it's wrong to feel a connection or affiliation to a political party, to be clear. However, what I am saying is if your choices in every way you view the world is through I'm either on the left or I'm either on the right, your identity is not ultimately rooted in who God says you are, and that's a spiritual problem. And so often, the the beast that we saw earlier, the beast really represents these nations and these leaders who carry out the practices of Babylon and promote the practices of Babylon. And so I would ask, if, if God destroys that, 
would we say? Could you maybe not? <laughs> Funny. Could go on and on and on. What are these things? Here's really what I'm, what I'm getting to. What are the things in our lives that, that really promote ourself and reject God? I'll ask it this way. Do I pursue, promote, and enjoy the things that are ultimately a rejection of God? Do I pursue, promote, and enjoy the things that are ultimately saying, my kingdom come, my will be done? Or do I want to reject those things and say, no, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? That's a difficult question that we need to ask, but I think as believers in Jesus, we need to ask the question. I'm reminded of Psalm 139. Verses 23 and 24, it says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. I want to challenge us to go before God and say, Search me. I'm saying this to myself. Search me, God. Is there a way that I'm following, that I'm promoting, that I'm pursuing, that I'm enjoying, that you viewed serious enough, and I say this all the time, that you viewed serious enough to go to the cross and die for. Because it's going to get destroyed. It's going to be wiped away. So Holy Spirit, do with that what you will. We're going to continue on into the text. And again, we're sort of clicking the viewfinder, and now we're going to a different scene, all part of this great grand picture of what Jesus is doing. The scene changes, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Now, I said a minute ago, the disc in the the viewfinder is God destroying his enemies. And so now that we click the picture and we see this different view and it's a supper, a feast, a meal, and it's a wedding feast, we might be like, well, I'm confused. How does a feast and a meal fit in with Jesus systematically destroying his enemies? Great question. I'm glad you're asking good questions this morning. It's really good. We're, we're all tracking together. I like it. Okay? Here's, here's the thing. I think we see is that meals in the Bible often serve as memorials of God's victories over Satan. You look all the way back throughout Scripture in the book of Genesis, for example. I believe it's Genesis 43. Fact check me there. Um, I don't have it in front of me. Genesis, we see... This long story of Joseph, and it culminates in 43, I believe. This long story of Joseph. Remember his brothers, they were very jealous of him. Joseph wasn't very wise. Like, he was the youngest, sort of the runt of the litter, and he's like, you guys are going to bow down to me. Like, how do you think that's going to go, Joseph? You know, like, just be smart. But anyway, they don't like him, and so they cast him in a pit. They have some empathy for him, so they sell him into slavery. He gets taken to Egypt. I mean, horrible. Can you imagine your own siblings selling you into slavery? Like, that's messed up. Some of y'all got messed up families. I feel like I got a messed up family sometimes. That's super messed up. Anyway, so he gets sold to Egypt. Evil, evil, evil thing happening here. 
He is mistreated. He is falsely accused. All sorts of things happen. Well, then Pharaoh has some dreams. God gives Joseph the ability to interpret these dreams. All of a sudden, Joseph finds himself essentially the ruler of all Egypt. He creates this system to store and organize grain. Then there's this massive famine, and the whole world needs to come to Egypt to get grain because God used Joseph to store the grain. What we see is eventually is that Joseph's brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery, they come because they need some food. Eventually, Joseph reveals, hey, it's me. Remember me? They reconcile, and they feast. It's fascinating. There's this big old meal, and it's awesome. So what is happening here? Well, what we see is that Satan meant those events for evil. God meant them for good. That's what the scriptures say. And so then what we see is this meal, in a sense, commemorates or memorializes this moment where God defeated the schemes of Satan. Hallelujah. Amen. And so they're sitting at this table saying, look what God did. We tried to kill you, and now we're here eating dinner. Only God could restore that relationship. If you go more into the Old Testament, actually forward into the Old Testament, you see in the book of Exodus, Israel is enslaved in Egypt. It's not good. No bueno, bad stuff. And what happens is, uh, eventually they are freed out of Egypt. They have to dip the blood of a lamb over their doorpost. And what happens is the Spirit of God comes. He acknowledges and sees the blood over the Israelites' doorposts. He passes over their house, does not kill the firstborn of their family. It's called the Passover. And so what then happens is Israel is in in the wilderness after their freedom. God says, no, I want you to remember how I rescued you and saved you out of Egypt. When you painted the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of your house and I passed over you, I want you all to sit down and remember how I saved you. Something about meals that makes us remember, that makes us connect. And again, this is a memorial of how God defeated the schemes of Satan. Fast forward, there's, there's like 10 more meals we could talk about in the Old Testament, which is amazing. I'm going to fast forward for the sake of time because it's already 1045. That's not good. Ten, um, what happens in the New Testament is you look at the Last Supper, for example, okay? In the Last Supper, Jesus is celebrating the Passover feast with his disciples, okay? And you might say, well, how is that a memorial of a victory over Satan? Like, Jesus hasn't died yet. But here's the thing. Jesus knows he, he, he's going to win. And so he's instituting this thing called the Last Supper, which is communion, as we're going to take here in a little while. And then he, he tells them, look, like, these are the things that are going to happen when you eat this, when you do this. This is what that means. And so, in a sense, every time we take communion, church, every time we feast, we're remembering how Jesus' body was broken for us, how Jesus' blood was spilled for us, and how his righteousness is given to me and to you. Every single time, it's a memorial of how Jesus defeated Satan. And so then, when we go back to the context of Revelation chapter 19, we're in a little viewfinder, all of a sudden it makes a whole lot of sense that there's this incredible wedding feast. I just defeated Babylon, everybody, Jesus says, hypothetically. I don't want to put words in Jesus' mouth. And they're like, let's feast. Let's memorialize this moment. It's the feast. The church is the bride of Christ. And so they're coming together to say, you did it. Like, there's victory. You won. It is good. It is right. And there is a celebration that has to just be incredible. And I can't wait for the marriage feast of the Lamb. You and I, we are invited. 
through faith in Christ. We're going to be a part of that, which is absolutely stunning. And so it makes sense that there's a feast. Now, the text continues. Click to the next view thing. Maybe I should stop using that illustration, but for my brain, which is simple, it helps. Verse 11, it says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on, a white, on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Of his robe, on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. It's a scary scene, let's be honest. A lot of times when we think of Jesus in our culture today, we get two images on our head. Little baby Jesus in a manger, perfectly manicured hair and beard Jesus who was meek and mild and never said anything mean to anybody. Right? Like, man, if I could just have a beard like Jesus, that would be awesome. Right? We get these two pictures of this, like, flowing, like, meek and mild Jesus. And to be clear, Jesus was gentle and lowly. As Brad talked about, Jesus is, the, is peaceful. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden with burden, and I will give you rest. What a promise that is. He is that. And simultaneously, he is this. And I think right now, church, we need to think of Jesus a whole lot more like warrior, victory Jesus than we do meek and mild Jesus. Now, I want to be really, really careful here because throughout the, the, the history of the church, warrior Jesus and the picture of warrior Jesus has been used to weaponize religion to control people and promote hateful things. Here's what I would say. The way that we make war on the enemy and the way that Jesus ultimately makes war on the enemy is through the defeat of sin, repentance, and faith. Jesus fights with different weapons. Yes, at some point here, he is going to return and he is going to destroy. But today, you and I, the way we take ground back from the enemy is through repentance, through faith, and through sharing our faith with other people and seeing them ransomed from the dominion of darkness, freed from the enemy's grip, freed from the enemy's control, and set free. That is warfare against Satan. That's punching Satan in the throat and saying, Jesus wins. That's how we wage war, church here and now, in this community, in this city, in this nation, in this world. We wage war through personal repentance, personal faith, and doing everything we can to share the love of Christ and the forgiveness of sins. And at some point, Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, it's not baby Jesus, meek and mild in a manger. It's not flowing hair, perfect beard, Jesus probably didn't look like that, by the way. It's warrior Jesus with a sword, his robe dipped in blood, wiping away everything. 
Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. We have a second meal here that's interesting. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. It's this epic buildup, isn't it? It's like you're watching a Lord of the Rings movie and these just legions of orcs and nasty creatures come out and they're, they're you know, chanting and they're stomping and they're fighting. You get this picture of this beast, false prophet, the kings of the earth, ready to try and fight, glorified, majestic, sword in his mouth, fire in his eyes. Don't mess with me, Jesus. Like, how do you think that's going to go? It's quite the setup. Here's what's crazy. Verse 20. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Jesus shows up, fights over. It's not this epic battle scene. Jesus shows up, fight is over. Jesus wins. You've got to know that. You've got to be clear. Jesus defeats everybody. False prophet, the Antichrist, the throne is something called the lake of fire. And then there's a second feast. And that second feast is really gruesome. It's really gnarly. It's birds coming down and eating the flesh of those who have rebelled against God, who have rejected God over and over and over and over and over again. And when Jesus comes back, there will not be another chance. There will just be destruction. And so, church, we have an invitation then on which feast we want to be a part of. Do we want to be a part of the feast of the Lamb, the wedding feast? The alternative is to be a part of the feast of the birds. I don't think we want to be a part of that feast. So I think we could probably end there, especially because of what time it is, but we're not going to. Uh, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 20, um, because next week we need to cover 21 and 22, but I can't not talk about Revelation 20, okay? So continue with me, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. And a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, it's the same pit that we just saw before, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on, those, uh, seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Everybody understand? Clear? Good? No, not so much. These verses are perhaps the most heavily debated verses in all of scripture, and so I felt I just like 
I had to talk about them. I really didn't want to, frankly, but I, I have to because there's a lot of debate here. And, and the debate um, surrounds the nature of this thousand years. Several times it mentions this thousand year period, and we call this the millennium, okay? And so uh, this debate, I want to be really clear, is not a, bait of heres- a debate of heresy or not heresy. It's really not. It's not a debate of, hey, I land one way, you land another way. Because you land another way, you're wrong, and you don't love Jesus. That's not true at all. So let me give you the three different views. There, there are traditionally three views, um, and we call those premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. You can abbreviate those as premill, amill, postmill. Uh, there could be a fourth view. Um, I'll call that panmill. And panmill believers aren't really sure how it's all going to happen, but believe it's all going to pan out in the end. Eschatological joke there. Swing and a miss. All right. So anyway, what, what are these different views? Okay. So pre-mill, their, their view, and, and again, if you hold this belief, like, okay, um, pre-mill believes that Jesus is going to return as we saw him here before um, this, this thousand-year literal kingdom where Jesus reigns on earth with his saints. It's this almost like utopia, but, but a good one where Jesus is the king. Jesus is reigning. And the view is here that Jesus is going to return, wipe away all the enemies. He's going to take Satan. He's going to bind him. And he's going to throw him in this pit for a thousand years. And it's going to be this perfect place. It's going to be amazing. Now, eventually, what happens after that thousand-year kingdom is over in the premillennialist view, yeah, said that right, um, is that Satan will be released for a time. He will deceive a bunch of people. There will be yet another battle. Jesus wins again. And there's judgment, and we'll get to that. That's the pre-mill. The amill is a belief that the millennium is more symbolic in nature. The amill belief would say that the millennium really is the time between Jesus' first coming 2,000 years ago and his second coming, which we don't know when that is. And so the, the amills would cite verses like um, the, the, when Jesus is talking to Pharisees and they're saying, you're casting out demons by the power of demons, he would say, no, I bound the strong man. A house can't be divided on itself. He's saying, no, Satan is bound, right? And I'm casting out demons by the power of God, not by the power of Satan. And so the Amil would, would continue along with the symbolic view of Revelation and say, no, we are today already reigning with Christ Satan is bound to a degree, though he still has authority, but when we are saved, he cannot rip us out of the hands of Jesus. We are saved. Okay, that's the, and they don't believe in a literal thousand-year kingdom. The post-mill is similar to a-mill, and the post-mill says, hey, um, essentially there's going to be a, an increasingly upward-to-the-right amount of Christians in the world, and essentially the last segment of a thousand years before Jesus returns, that's the kingdom. Okay, so it's very similar to amillennialism, but not the entire expanse of history. Here's the thing. I will, I will admit, I lean amill. I do. But if you and I sat down and you were a firm pre-mill or a post-mill and you had your stuff, I would probably walk away from that conversation and be like, well, maybe I'm a pre-mill. You know, like I, I, I don't really get too caught up in it. But here, I just wanted you to know it. Okay, I wanted you to be aware of it. But what I really want us to see ultimately, and most importantly, is what happens here in in verses 10 um, and then 11 through 15. It says this, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. So again, there's this rebellion. The devil, he's 
you know, chained from the pit, and he's got essentially free reign. And he, he goes and recruits all these people, and there's this battle, right, and, and this huge battle, and again, once again, Jesus shows up, the battle's over, okay? And so, and the devil, verse 10, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Verses 11 through 15, then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, this would be the second resurrection, those who do not belong to Jesus, the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here's the point. Whatever view you land, scriptures seem really, really clear. At some point, there's going to be a great judgment. At some point, all of us are going to face the God of the universe and have to give an account. To have to, to have to say, do we belong to Jesus or do we not? And the works that are referenced here, works are just evidence of faith, just to be clear. Okay? What I want us to primarily see is that salvation is found exclusively in Jesus. There's no third option. He doesn't open the books and say, oh, I, I don't see your name, but um, did you believe in another religion? Okay, you believe in another religion, you're in. No, no, that, he doesn't say that. He doesn't open the books and say, well, I don't see your name here. Were you a really good person? No, it doesn't, doesn't really say that, I don't think, either. Scripture is really, really clear. There's only one way to the Father. That's through Jesus. And we can't bend on that. And it's really tempting to sometimes because it seems so hard-lined. And frankly, Christianity is extraordinarily exclusive and extraordinarily inclusive. What I mean by that is all of us, no matter how broken, no matter how sinful, no matter how messed up we are, every single one of us, no matter how horrible you might think that person is, or no matter how horrible you might think you are, you have received an invitation. It is an inclusive invitation to everyone. And yet is an, Christianity is incredibly exclusive because only through faith in Jesus are you admitted into heaven and not cast into the lake of fire. Jesus is the only way. And so then what should that do in us? It should stir in us a healthy desire to be right with Jesus. And we do that through repentance and through faith. And it should stir in us a healthy desire to go and make disciples of those who are around us and those of all nations. Because the end is coming and we don't know when that end necessarily is. And there will be judgment. And so as we sort of wrap things up this morning, here's what I'd like to do. I think the, the, the way we can be most effective in reaching people is by first saying, where am I with God? And the way I want to do that this morning is, is through the taking of communion. To be clear, if you're joining us this morning and you are a believer in Jesus, communion is for you. If you didn't receive the elements, you can raise your hand and one of our team members can hand those elements to you. 
Communion is, is for believers. If you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I'm not yet a believer in Jesus, don't take these elements. Don't do it because you, I don't want you to say something that's untrue of yourself. Here's what I want us to do. Remember how meals are memorials for how God has defeated Satan. Remember that? What we're going to do is I'm going to have Brad come up here in a second. Brad and Annie, and they're going to lead us in a final song. We're going to take communion a little bit differently this morning. As they begin to play, what I want you to do is I want you to assess your own heart. If you need to repent this morning, I want you to repent. If you need to go to the back and talk to somebody, we have a Next Steps team back there who wants to pray with you and talk with you, I want you to do that. If you want to take a minute at your seat, as they're singing, you don't have to stand. You can sit, whatever you want to do to respond. What I want you to do as you're taking this cup, I want you to, to think about Jesus, if meals throughout the scripture represent your victories over Satan, Jesus, remind me of how you defeated Satan in my life. Remind me of what you have saved me from. Remind me of how you have ripped me from the dominion of darkness and made me into a new creation in Christ. Remind me of the good works that you've set before me. And as I take this meal of your body broken for me and your blood poured out for me, I want this to be a memorial moment to say, Jesus, I belong to you and to you alone. And I want your kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. I want your kingdom to come, your reign, your rule in my life. So as we sing and as we worship, that's what I want you to do. Take all the time you need. So again, Brad and Annie are going to lead us. We can bow our heads. We can dim the lights. Take whatever time you need. After the song is over, after we've all responded, take the elements whenever you want to take them, to be clear. We'll come up and we'll close in prayer. So let's take time to respond this morning.